0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and tonight I'm bringing you a solo episode because my co-host Thomas Fry is in a Southeast Asian village slaying a dragon. Uh, Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com. Slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting to speak at your event or to advertise on our podcast. I've just wrapped up a fascinating interview with Quentin Pope. Quentin is a computer science PhD student who spends a lot of time thinking about AI safety. And I think he has done really, really good work in critiquing some of the analogies that the less wrong community and researchers like Eliezer Yudkowsky make between evolution via natural selection and The future development of advanced superhuman AI systems. So this is one of the main pillars of the argument. We only have one big example of an optimization process that produced general intelligence, and rather a lot is made of that, and rather a lot is drawn from that analogy, and so it's important to get it right. Quinn has thought a lot about this, and after reading a number of his essays, I invited him to come onto the podcast and talk us through it, Uh, it, It was a fascinating conversation. We really get into the weeds on this, so it's a highly technical episode, but I hope you find it as informative as I did. So without further ado, here is our interview with Quentin Pope. Tonight, we're joined by Quentin Pope a computer science graduate student at Oregon State University. He is an alignment researcher focusing on methods of instilling human compatible values into deep learning based AI systems with a particular focus on language models. He co-developed Shard Theory, an attempt to explain the human value formation process as a consequence of simple reinforcement learning and self-supervised learning dynamics. His interests also include the optimization dynamics of neural networks, human brains, and evolution, as well as how they tie into AI takeoff scenarios and alignment concerns. His current research focuses on methods of scalably supervising self-improving AI systems. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futurepodcast.com. and thanks so much for coming on the show thanks so much for having me let's hear a little bit about your background your interests and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on now okay so my background is that
1: um like my passion from going into undergraduate is that i wanted to be an astrophysicist because i thought that like space and physics were really cool um and so i got an undergraduate degree in physics and applied math and then i realized that like oh agi is going to happen probably fairly soon um and it's going to be like a pretty big deal and i should probably do something about this and so for my phd i switched over to computer science and applied to oregon state university then i saw that professors from there had gotten funding from um like I think open fill for AI alignment. Um and now I'm finishing my fourth year, or I've just finished my fourth year as a PhD as a computer science PhD student. Um so far I've been studying like natural language processing, um, interpretability of NLP and the application of NLP techniques to a variety to different domains beyond language itself. Um I've also done a, I guess, somewhat moderate amount of alignment work, let's say. Um, I'm the co-originator of something called shard theory, which is the attempt to basically explain the process of human value formation and like value formation in general in terms of pretty simple reinforcement learning prosody or learning processes. Um, yeah, my current research, or, and then what, yeah, we covered what got me into this, my background. Um, I guess we can talk a bit about my current interests, so. Currently, I'm working on two projects, one of which is to, like, provide a series of mini literature reviews, uh, on academic papers that are relevant to alignment. Uh, you can see this in my Lesseron profile, uh, Quentin's Alignment Papers Roundup. I've had published four of these, and uh, will shortly publish the fifth one. I'm uh, discussing why grokking like, is not that big of a deal, probably. Uh, um, my second current project is to extend some work that has been looking at how the local geometry of uh, and neural networks loss landscape corresponds to its generalization behavior um, yeah uh, and then my third project is that the is trying to develop additional techniques for scalable supervision of AIs especially focusing on like AIs that improve themselves or improve other AIs uh using like iterative refinements of their training data instead of, like, iterative refinements of their code directly. So, sort of, like, studying how to effectively supervise recursive self-improvement for deep learning
0: systems. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff. So, um... Uh... It's interesting that Oregon State has professors there that have actually been funded by Open Phil. So do they do they do alignment stuff? W- what's your PhD work on and, and how much does it interface with alignment? Okay, so
1: um, I want to be clear. I applied to Oregon State because I've seen that they received grants from like alignment that were focused on supporting alignment research. I don't specifically remember if it was open built that did these grants. Um, that's just... Uh, and so in terms of like the degree to which my nominal PhD work has been focused on alignment, it's sort of mixed. Um, some of my initial work was, I think, relatively good for an alignment. Perspective, I was working on uh, basically interpretability for natural language processing. And specifically, what I was doing was developing methods of uh, automatically generating counterfactual inputs to uh, language model classifiers. So, if you train a BERT classifier um, to tell whether or not a text has positive or negative sentiment, Then my work was to develop a method of automatically producing like minimal modifications to inputs that would cause them to have reversed classification relative to the vert model. And um, yeah, which is supposed to like better illustrate where the model's classification boundaries are between the positive and negative sentiment text. my later work was much less alignment-focused. It was the like application of natural language processing techniques to other domains, and specifically that was uh, taking um, training techniques for language models, specifically the ELECTRA training methodology for language models, and applying them to uh, microbiome data Mm. Uh, and so we basically took built like a language model for uh, microbiome information. Admittedly I was focused mostly on the interpretability side of that work rather than the quote unquote capabilities side of things. So um, I guess it was like kind of a little alignment-ish, I suppose.
0: That's Fascinating research. So I've got a couple of clients where I'm I'm working on pieces focused around generative AI and its its various applications. And I've been reading a lot about uh, how the basic generative AI training methodology can be applied to things like protein design or uh, materials, uh, discovering new materials, or, or like mapping the structure of inorganic compounds to their ultimate properties. It's, it's, got many applications outside of natural language generation. It's sort of an obvious place to start because there's so much text data and it's kind of nice and crisp as these things go, but it really has far-reaching applications, and I'm very excited to see, you know, what people come up with as they explore those intersections.
1: Yeah, um, if anything, I think kind of the more natural fit for these sorts of technique is like... LHC data, massive amounts of data from the LHC or like metagenomic sequencing data, Um, where there you have even more data than we have for natural language and like the value add for building a language model of those data modalities is much clearer than it is for language. I is the like, humans are already language models, but no humans on Earth are LHC uh experimental data models. So like the relative gain you get from training models are on like inhuman on like data that humans don't bother reading millions of words worth of it's clearer.
0: Um, Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You're less likely to automate me out of a job, so by all means, go do the physics stuff. Uh, So I want to spend most of this interview on your arguments about evolution being a disanalogy for AI alignment. Because I think that this is, it's a really big deal if you're true, if you're right, so in, in all his recent interviews and in his writings going back 20 years, Eliezer Yudkowski has always made this, this uh, analogy between natural selection, the sharp left turn, how capabilities generalize far outside of alignment, when you, you know, consider the evolutionary process and natural selection specifically to be optimizing humans for passing on their genes, uh, it, it's the main metaphor that pretty much the whole of the argument rests on, so you know, to the extent that you're right, it's a pretty big deal. It would, it would kick out one of the main legs that this this whole structure is standing on. So I want to get into that, and I want to spend most of our time on that. And, and first, I thought we could start by clearing out some jargon so that we're sort of all starting from the same place. So first, could you define the difference between outer optimization and inner optimization? And then we'll talk a little bit about the sharp left turn and what that means.
1: Okay, so... Like, outer optimization versus inner optimization is, I think, a fairly confused topic um, in a lot of alignment discourse. So, I'll start with the easy one. The outer optimization objective is just your loss. function. It's just like the criterion you apply to judge how good your model is currently doing in terms of its behavior. Typically. Um technically, some people, some weirdos like define outer loss criteria that are functions of the model's internal computations in various ways, but this is not common practice. Most mostly the outer optimization criteria is like you judge how well your AI did a particular task, and then you update the AI's internals to make it a bit better on that task in the future. And so that task or the mixture of tasks in question, or even like more specifically, like exactly the math you use to define how well your AI did on that mix of tasks in question is the outer optimization criteria. Now, inner optimization is a thing that's like much harder to talk about. And there are various intuitions people have about it the idea with inner optimization is that um, optimizing for stuff is like a useful thing for an AI to be able to do and so maybe gradient descent or the process of training an AI to be good at a particular outer optimization criterion will produce something in the AI which is called an inner optimizer, which does optimization itself in order to be good at whatever outer criterion the model is being trained to do on. In terms of what the inner objective is, the original paper that discussed inner versus outer optimization, uh, the risks from learned optimization paper, um, specifically said that an inner objective was like an explicitly represented value computation inside of the AI, mixed with an explicitly represented optimizer that tries to maximize that internal value computation. Um so for example, you train an AI on the you train an AI to be like good at chess, and as a consequence, this AI develops Some internal computations that track, like, the odds that it's going to win the current game, Um, and there's some like research esque thing, maybe, or something like that, which happens inside of the AI that's like exploring different branches of possible future games and is trying to like increase this internally computed. score of how likely the AI is to win the game. So the inner optimization criterion is like this thing that was sort of accidentally created from SGD building like the infrastructure for the AI to internally estimate the score. And the AI is speculated to be doing some sort of internal search uh over computation, that like maximize that internally calculated score.
0: Okay, it, it might help moving forward to cast this in explicitly evolutionary and biological terms, because we're going to talk about the disanalogy from evolution. So, if I understand correctly, outer optimization would be natural selection, right, which grinds towards trying to maximize the number of copies of your genes that are in the next generation. The inner optimization would be the the shards of values, which are well, I, maybe I shouldn't use that that language, but it's it's the things that correlate with fitness in the EEA, things like a preference for salt and fat or a desire for sex, uh, th- those are values that are in human agents, and then we have an internal optimization process, general intelligence, which allows us to get more of those things, and once upon a time, the argument goes they were correlated with fitness, now they're not, and that's kind of where a lot of this argument, specifically around the sharp left turn, gets, gets its impetus. Uh, is that the correct way of phrasing it evolutionarily? Yeah, so
1: things become even trickier when you start to try and apply this framework to evolution because evolution operates with an additional layer of optimization as compared to deep learning. So um, the way it's often framed is that like evolutionary inclusive fitness is the outer loss function or outer optimization criteria. And then evolution is like tuning in, tuning the values that an organism forms, a human brain forms within its lifetime in ways that uh, in the ancestral environment reliably resulted in that organism, that human increasing their inclusive genetic fitness. Um, And so in this context, Inclusive genetic fitness is the outer criterion, and human values are the inner criterion. So, what humans actually do is they like try to maximize their values. Um, And this works fine on distribution uh, in the ancestral environment, but once you move outside of the ancestral environment, there are ways to achieve the inner criterion without also achieving the outer criterion. And so the argument goes, like, um, roughly 0% of the outer criteria, inclusive genetic fitness, made its way into the inner criteria, human values. Uh, And we should expect the same thing to happen with deep learning systems.
0: Okay. And then it's it's usually, there's usually a few more steps where they talk about the sharp left turn, which is specifically when the inner optimization process, a human intelligence, was able to, generalized far outside of distribution we pretty in fairly short order began pursuing things which really had no connection to inclusive genetic fitness so our capabilities generalized far more than our alignment with the underlying optimization process the the thought is that in a powerful deep learning system or in an, in an artificial super intelligence the same dynamic would play out and you would have something that had been optimized for predicting the next token which now has the AI equivalent of ice cream or, or condoms or what have you and begins to behave in ways that are that are um, either unconnected to next token prediction or are otherwise just sampled from a far larger space. And so that's problematic because it will be harder to control. It'll be harder to predict what it's going to do. Uh, and we can't assume that what it ultimately aligns on will be the thing that we were trying to get into the system in the first place yeah what we what we want out of the system i guess is maybe a better way of putting it um
1: yeah that's often an argument that pessimists make regarding how we should interpret the historical fact associated with human evolution
0: okay so now that we've got inner and outer optimization cleared and we've talked a little bit about this sharp left turn i want you to to walk through your argument for why this is a disanalogy that it that it's pretty much hopeless to try to mine evolution and inclusive genetic fitness for insights about the ways in which deep learning systems or recursively self-improving systems will ultimately play out.
1: Yeah. Um, so there are actually, like, many reasons why it's pointless to try and reason from evolution to, uh, deep learning. The core issue... Is that there are multiple disanalogies between what happened in human evolutionary history versus the current state and likely future state of deep learning development. And it's that's not it's not just that there are disanalogies. It's that there are very specific disanalogies which clearly and straightforwardly predict the outcome. Uh they're like Misalignment and sharp left turn that happened in the context of human evolution. And these circumstances do not apply for uh, deep learning development. So, like, if you imagine a kind of Bayesian inference graph, causal inference graph, um, there's an obversi- observation of like mis- misalignment with inclusive genetic. <laughs> Uh, and in order to explain this ob- observation, Yudkowsky and Soros and others like infer backwards that there must be a general tendency of like optimization processes to undergo catastrophic distributional shifts, sharp left turns, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm arguing is instead that like above this node corresponding to the observation that a sharp left turn occurred in human evolution, that there was uh, misalignment in human evolution, and so on. Above this node are these causal factors that predict the evidence we observe from evolution fully. And so once you have, once you introduce those factors into your causal graph, you can no longer validly make an inference from having observed Uh, evolutionary misalignment to a sharp left turn to speculating that there's a general tendency for these things to occur in like arbitrary optimization processes. So that's the general structure of the explanation for why we can't infer um, negative things about deep learning uh, outcomes from having observed evolutionary outcomes. Now the specific disanalogies are several fold. I think the most straightforward, or no, not this is not the most straightforward disanalogy, but the most central disanalogy, the most important disanalogy in my mind is what I alluded to previously, that evolution is like a multi-level optimization process in a way that deep learning training is not. So with evolution, you have um, the human genome, right? Evolution doesn't actually optimize over your values directly. Rather, evolution optimizes over the genomes of humans, and the genomes of humans configure the human brain. So the genome like specifies that you have a brain at all. It specifies how big it is. It specifies like the different regions of your brain, and very importantly, it specifies the reward circuitry. In your brain, at least at first. Um at least the reward circuitry is like initial configuration. And it specifies a variety of like regional hyperparameters how neurons function, the update rule for how synapses reconfigure themselves. So they'd be in learning and all that. Yeah, yeah. Or not heavy in learning, but whatever the brain actually is. Um and then once the genome does this, then the brain runs its own optimization process, which is like minimizing predictive error in, say, your visual cortex, auditory cortex, and so on and so forth, as well as, like, learning to get more reward, learning to activate your reward circuitry in your environment, learning to imitate the behaviors of those around you, and so on and so forth. So, there... So, evolution doesn't, like, configure the cognition of an individual directly in the same way that deep learning on a loss function directly configures the cognition of a deep neural network. Evolution configures a learning process, and it sets how a learning process is initialized, and then that learning process executes in the current environment. And as a consequence of that learning process executing, that's where the cognition and values and behaviors of a single individual arise. So there's an additional step in the structure of evolution which is not present in training a deep neural network. At least in the common practice of how deep neural networks are currently trained. There are like exotic weird setups of meta-learning which are more similar to how evolution works. But those aren't how we ...apparently performs state the AI research and development. Um, so the reason this single, this like multi-level uh, optimization process matters is that it really influences how the out-of-distribution generalization behaviors uh, you get are and how robust those are. Um, no, no, no. Before that, let's just make it clear that like the misalignment we saw in evolution isn't even like a valid example of the sort of misalignment we're worried about in deep learning models. So what people are worried about with deep learning models it is that we'll like train the model to be nice and helpful in a bunch of different environments, right? And then it does that during training. And then during deployment, it then does something bad, but not nice and helpful in the deployment environment. So you're like, we're concerned about an outcome where we train the model to do X in environment A, and then we deploy it to environment B, and it does Y instead, right? That's not what happens in evolution. So in evolution, um, if we put it in the like terminology of deep learning, what evolution did is it like trained a bunch of models to do X, in environment A, and they did X in environment A. That's like our ancestral humans. They were quote-unquote trained in the ancestral environment to do ancestral human things, they did ancestral human things in the ancestral environment. And then, all of those humans died. Right? And then new humans arose in the modern environment. And those new humans, they were trained to do, like, Y in the modern environment. They were trained to do other stuff. In this different environment, and they're different models, and they do why in the modern environment. So instead of evolution being an example of like a train versus test uh, misgeneralization of a single model, evolution is like, right. yeah, distribution shift as a result of the distribution shift. Evolution, there are like these two classes of models, right? The class of model in the ancestral environment, which was. To do stuff in the ancestral environment and did stuff that stuff in the ancestral environment versus completely different models in the modern environment, which were trained to do stuff in the modern environment did stuff in the modern environment. So, for example, you mention, and Yukowski also mentions like ice cream, pursuing ice cream in the modern environment. Um so there's a story you can tell about how humans were like trained by evolution hunt gazelles in the ancestral environment and they did that in the ancestral environment but then humans like misgeneralized to pursuing ice cream in the modern environment right? and the issue here is that the actual mechanism behind evolution steering humans to do stuff in either environment is to give humans reward circuitry that activates upon the consumption of sugar, salt, whatever and in the ancestral environment with only gazelles and no ice cream, this reward circuitry activated on consumption of gazelles and successfully aligned ancestral humans to the pursuit of gazelles, right? So evolution, so humans were trained to pursue gazelles in the ancestral environment and they did pursue gazelles in the ancestral environment. And and then the modern environment, you have different humans with the same reward circuitry, but different distributions of quote-unquote training data. So in the modern environment, Humans were trained to pursue ice cream in that environment, and they were then generalized correctly to pursuing ice cream in that environment. So, there's a step in this like story of quote-unquote misgeneralization, where the humans were actually literally trained to do the behavior, which is called a misgeneralization. In the model, you see part. how they mean yeah yeah so like if you want to translate this story into the language of machine learning you'd come up with some totally irrational training process you'd have to be like alright I am I'm like Evo Inc a corporation which is trying to train um, personal assistant models or like personal assistant robot right and what we do is we have this brilliant bi level two level optimization scheme where we have like our robot in our simulated environment or whatever and instead of directly training the robots to be good in the simulated environment we're instead like searching over we have some automatic process of searching over reward function to give these robots that will in the simulated environment cause them to learn to be good and helpful to humans right so we have a bunch of generations of robots in a simulated environment. And each generation consists of like freshly initializing a new robots, having them interact with a bunch of humans, and then they're all all those robots are deleted. And each time we like score how well they interacted with humans. And then instead of like updating the policy network of the robot to do better with humans, we instead update the reward function of the robot to do better when interacting with humans. Uh so that the robots are like trained. Over the course of training, they end up interacting with humans in a way we judge it better. Um, and the reason this is like a terrible idea, and the reason these sorts of setups prime you for the sort of catastrophic uh, misgeneralization issues that evolution encountered is because the environment can have like, like suppose the environment contains some spurious constraint, say over the behavior of the robots. Let's say that in the simulated environment, the robots are only physically able to be nice and helpful to humans. Like if a robot is near a human, then it automatically behaves in them, that's a nice and helpful manner, right? If this is somehow like a law of the simulated environment, um,
0: then with that on your end, or? Okay. Uh, it's playing outside, so that's probably what's picking up.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, so in that, like, very constrained artificial environment where any robot near human acts positively towards that human, in a good way towards that human, it suffices to simply make the robot's reward function be, like, plus one for being near human minus one otherwise and so when you just search automatically over whatever reward function suffices to get to train in good behavior in the simulated environment you just find that very simple reward function right and then the like final generation of robots in the simulated environment they're trained with this reward function and everything works out fine uh like they whenever they're near humans they are nice and helpful to them and then The mechanistic function of a reinforcement learning is to make that behavior more likely in the future by updating the robot's cognition. You get a robot that behaves nice and helpful to humans whenever it's nearby humans. That works out fine. And then Evo Inc. does this catastrophically stupid decision of deleting all of their well-trained, nice and helpful robot system and restarting a new generation of robot assistants from scratch with the reward function that had been found in the simulated environment, but deploying them into the real environment to learn on that reward function. Right? So you see where this goes wrong, because now the distribution over possible interacting has vastly expanded, and the robots just like strangle humans to death. because they're no longer forced to uh, behave in the desired way simply by being near humans. Right? So you find your reward function for one environment, which works well to produce a good policy in that environment, and then you delete the good policy it produced in that environment, take the reward function to a completely different environment, and retrain a new policy in that environment, which is just, like, able to exploit the reward function in arbitrary ways.
0: Right, so in that case, in this thought experiment you've set up, you've got the reward function, right, which specifies what it is the agent is actually trying to achieve, It's trying to be near humans, but it it updates this, it, it creates this new policy. No, I've got it wrong.
1: Reward functions don't specify what agents are trying to achieve. They're they don't set the values of an agent. They just determine which sorts of behaviors tend to get reinforced. They determine which sorts of behavioral patterns tend to get reinforced. So, the thing about the in-simulation training of the robots is that the simulation isn't training them to be, like, near-human. It's training certain types of behavioral patterns. Um, like, the the robots events certain types of behavioral patterns and then the reward function determines which of those patterns are reinforced that's just the mechanistic effect of doing of doing like uh, uh the reinforce algorithm on a given demonstration of behavior. so the tra- so the simulation isn't like training them to be near humans it's just like The thing that the iterative generations across simulations is actually doing, the thing that's changing across generations, is the reward function itself. It's being updated to whatever reward function successfully gets, like, good behavior out of the robots within the simulation during their, like, within simulation training, right? And the issue is that this produces a reward function that works in the simulated environment to produce learning of good behavior in the simulated environment. But then when you change environments and learn on that fixed reward function, you get like completely different behavior.
0: Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Okay, so the reward function, this is, in, in your setup, this is not something specified by humans, right? So so you, just, you have a search process that looks over different reward functions in order to get, quote, good behavior as judged by whom? just people are watching it and they're like, that that looks yeah. good, boost boost that. Okay, and so then once you have arrived at a fixed reward function that produces behavior you like in the training simulation, you delete all those agents, take that reward function, put it into new ones in a totally different context, and they arrive at fresh policies which are misaligned with what we actually wanted. Is that right? So we're, we're, we have to, the listener has to bear in mind the distinction between a reward function and a reinforcement learning policy is that right do i have a... yeah 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 so just from like
1: a, a type perspective the type of thing that happened here in the like with evo inc's general deployment across generation and the type of thing that happened in the context of human evolution is not like you train a model to do one thing but then it suddenly, for whatever reason, does something It's like, you train your first model to do one thing, and then you train your second model to do a different thing, and then these two different models do different things. This is like the least surprising outcome that's imaginable.
0: I, I, I think I follow that part, right? So, so you're saying that the basic mechanism does not map from evolution to training a reinforcement learning agent. Like, you were training them in different contexts with the same underlying reward circuitry, which was found through natural selection, right? And of course, yeah. they're doing different things. But I, I guess one place that I'm not following you all the way is how that fails to be an example of misalignment. Because I mean, in what sense are we not misaligned with inclusive genetic fitness, the original purpose of the whole enterprise? We're not doing things now that that forward our genes into future generations in the same way. We're not pursuing behaviors that that accomplished that goal. I, and I, I understand it's, it's a different context. You are training fresh agents with the same reward circuitry. I, I do buy that, but it still seems to me like that is an example of misalignment.
1: Yeah, you can call it misalignment if you want. I think it's a little non-optimal to use the word misalignment for this outcome, because it's just like you should use different words for mechanistically different things. Um, the reason this matters in the context of like whether or not we're doing term AI, is that this isn't how we develop AIs. We don't like we don't do the process I described for Evo Inc., we like train an AI to be nice and helpful always. Um or I assume we'll reach the point of competency where we actually train an AI to be nice and helpful always. Like training on internet text isn't ideal for this, but we'll will move past the current issues in that regard, I think. Um, but let, let's just assume like we're at the point where we train and now yeah, be nice and helpful all the time. And we don't, like, then also, once we're done doing that, then train it to kill us all and take over the world. Um, So, like, the reason why humans pursue ice cream in the modern environment is because the reward circuitry Um, evolution furnished us with actually literally rewards us for doing that. Right? So if you try to tell a similar story about how RL agents could end up pursuing bad things as a result of when they're being trained, there has to be a part of the story where like, we literally train them to do bad things. If you want to say that they'll do bad things as a result of exactly the same mechanism as underlies humans pursuing ice cream in the modern environment, you can just like take your RL agent and look at the action for which it's getting reward and ask, "Are they bad or not?"
0: Right? Yeah. Well, so there, there's a couple of a couple of places you can come in there. So on the one hand, I think I think what you know, somebody like Yukowski would say is that uh, a lot of your argument is baking the idea of, you know, universally good outcomes or consistently and robustly good outcomes into the way you're discussing this. And what you're actually going to get is an agent that is doing some set of behaviors, which, you know, in this particular context, we view to be good. But that's not the same thing as actually getting a full suite, a full constellation of human values inside the algorithm which is ultimately what you're going to want and i forgot the second one i forgot what i was going to say after that
1: yeah so my point isn't that oh you'll necessarily get like perfect alignment it's that the specific mechanism that underlied the negative outcomes from evolution Is not the sort of thing that a plausible concern for producing an alarm, a catastrophic alignment failure. Like your theory of behavioral generalization—a theory of behavioral generalization, which fully explains both the evolution, the evolutionary outcome—is that like RL agents tend to perform behaviors similar to those they got rewarded for. Mm -hmm. Right. And that predicts the pursuit of gazelles in the industrial environment and the pursuit of ice cream in the modern environment. And under that theory, like if you're worried that an AI will kill you, it suffices to not reward the AI for killing you or killing people. Um, there are, of course, other concerns about like misgeneralization, where you train an AI to behave. Well, in many different situations, and then you deploy it into into novel environmental contexts where there's like some misgeneralization of the behavioral patterns that you instilled in the training environment, which causes it to interact with the environment in unexpected ways and kill you through like novel mechanisms in that novel environment. But this is not what happened in evolution, and evolution does not provide evidence for this.
0: It's not what happened in evolution. Because the dynamic yeah, so the, the underlying mechanism is totally different as your argument.
1: Yeah, and because in the story of evolution and human misgeneralization, they're, they're like modern human in the modern environment is literally trained to do the misgeneralization behavior in that environment. So it's like not even appropriate to call it misgeneralization. It's just like the normal outcome you'd expect from our very, very standard
0: perspective on what RL does and how it generalizes. But I I think that it's still problematic that the reward circuitry lights up in those ways because, I mean, why why couldn't you have like a powerful RL agent that has been trained to maximize its reward with some policy? who then later tries to seize control of its reward channel and understands that you will stop it you you will intervene to prevent it from doing that or you will otherwise modify its reward function which it doesn't want to happen because it's this is the thing it's pursuing this is baked into its source code and it kills you as a as a side effect of that why why would that not be plausible it's, it still seems like that would be a concern um so again this
1: isn't an argument for like why alignment is necessarily going to be trivial. It's a pretty specific argument against evolution, evolutionary outcomes being evident for um, alignment failures. And I'd again highlight in, in response to this concern of like wireheading slash reward hacking, slash et cetera, that mechanistically, like if you look at the reinforced equation, what it actually does When you reward an agent is to make the agent more likely to behave in a way similar to the actions that led to the reward right it doesn't like make the agent value their reward it doesn't tell the agent what you want to what you're like trying to make it do like the experience of an agent if they were conscious of being rewarded under at least like the classical reinforce algorithm isn't like a flash of enjoyment or pleasure or anything like that. It would just be like the agent notices over time its actions shift or in a particular direction. Like it, a coin finding agent wouldn't find, wouldn't be told that the Reward doesn't like tell a coin finding agent that the coin is valuable intrinsically. It just like modifies the agent's behavior so that it tends to uh, reach the coin more consistently. So what I'm saying is like if you don't reward the agent for taking the reward button away from you or pressing its own reward button, I don't think you're going to get an agent that like intrinsically values reward. And the concept,
0: uh-huh. yeah, but I mean, don't don't you have lots of examples of that exact thing happening? I mean, reward misspecification is really the rule, not the exception in RL. So, I, I mean, I, I take your point that it, I mean, if if you're not rewarding it for, uh, you know, taking the button away from you and preventing you from pushing it, you know, that behavior is not necessarily going to be reinforced. But it's pretty common for it to 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 end up doing things that are very much not what the researchers intended, because that's what maximizes the reward. Which and I, and I really you're you're not ruling that out. I, I understand you're you're trying to make it, you're, you're trying to specifically attack this analogy between evolution and and misalignment and advanced agents. I, I guess I'm just not like intuitively. I'm I'm still not sure how that rules out some of those disasters.
1: Yeah. So in like toy. RL training examples or like, I guess people didn't think they were toys at the time, but toy example of like maze navigating agents or um, racetrack playing agents. There are various right. examples of the agents. That the were, agent, yeah, the stumbling the around a very high, reward high that, yeah. yeah, and so that is like not an example of an agent that intrinsically values reward and thinks to itself Mm, how do I get the most reward possible and decides to reward hack that's an agent, an example of an agent with like a pretty random-ish exploration policy stumbles upon this hack of the environment and then once it completes the action of like going in a circle uh, until the end of the episode constantly collecting reward from a a responding coin, once it does the action like once its reinforced happens and it's updated to have its behavior more consistent with that action in the future and it does it again and again and again and constantly being reinforced into doing that sort of behavior more often. So if you like want it not to do that then you can like watch it and stop it when it first does that and that would suffice to prevent it from doing that.
0: I'll have to think about that. There's a, a lot of moving pieces to the argument I need to sit down and think it through. Why, why don't, uh, in the in the last few minutes here, why don't you walk us through shard theory? So I wanted to get all the disanalogy to evolution stuff out. I wanted that to be the bulk of the conversation, but I am pretty intru- pretty interested in shard theory, and I thought maybe you could just give us a high-level overview, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I didn't realize how limited we are in um, There are two... there.
1: Before we actually do that, let me just say there are two other disanalogies between NL training and evolution, okay. both of which also I think suffice to at least greatly reduce the amount of weight we should apply to the evolutionary analogy, if not like completely render it pointless. So the second disanalogy is that um has to do with more of the sharp left turn than this general evolution. And the issue is that um has to do so the common story is like evolution uh human capabilities increase very slowly with evolution, but once we became like generally intelligent, then our capabilities increase way faster. Um and I'd say that the reason this happened is not because there's some general factor or optimization processing to like explode suddenly in the rate at which they accumulate capabilities, uh or any general tendency towards that outcome. It's because Again, it's because evolution versus human values is like a bi-level optimization process. And specifically, evolution is like a very, very slow optimization process. So before the development of culture, the thing that caused species to accumulate capabilities across multiple generations was evolution over their genome, which takes like one step per generation, right? Um, In contrast, once you have culture, and once a generation I can transmit an arbitrary fraction of its knowledge to generation I plus one, once that bottleneck in cross-generational information transfer is removed, then capabilities can accumulate in culture instead of in the genome. And the reason this matters a lot is because Brains are far faster at optimizing than evolution. So like evolution takes one step per generation. Brains, if you assume two updates per second and 30 years per generation, take something like 2 billion update steps per generation. And so the reason that human culture progresses so much faster than like biological evolution, as far as accumulating capabilities across generations Is not because like at least in my opinion it's not because like um intelligence is so amazing it's because like intelligence has uh nine orders of magnitude more resources than evolution and indeed if you look at like bacteria who have a much faster generational time lapse (laughs) compared to us and a much larger population they can do like very impressive uh bio bio bioengineering or adaptations to antibiotics and similarly like viruses, adaptations to um, antivirals or vaccines and stuff like that, uh, which is like a technically very impressive feat um, because they have so much more optimization power available to them in a given period of time. So again, this way this works is like the hypothesized inference from the, the observation of how the sharp left turn turned out for humans to supposing there's some general factor of any optimization process, some general tendency for any optimization process to take sharp left turns is invalid because there's a straightforward reason specific to human evolution, which does not apply AI development, why the sharp left turn happened, and it's due to the enormous resource disparity because like human culture caused us to switch from a very slow optimizer to a much faster optimizer with an enormous resource disparity in favor of the new optimizer. And then the third reason why it's inappropriate to make inferences from evolutionary misgeneralization to AI misgeneralization is just because like, it's really hard to align things to um, inclusive genetic fitness as an objective. Just from like a standard, ordinary intuition without RL, you very rarely, it's like a very sparse reward signal, so to speak. Humans very rarely have children right so you don't have very many option opportunities to reward a human for having children so how do you like align them to having children if you assume their values come from an rls process which i think they do it's like very very difficult and this by the way i think is why humans are like why parents are generally willing to die for their children but very few people are like willing to die to have children, even though from an inclusive genetic fitness perspective, these are pretty similarly beneficial because once you have children in your environment, you interact with them far more frequently than previously, obviously. Um, and so evolution can hardwire various rewards for like interacting with your children in a positive manner. Whereas before you had children, Like, how do you even propose reward circuitry or other interventions at a genetic level that will like bias your values to having children? It's very difficult. And in fact, evolution does like much better, does a pretty impressive job at like priming people's values towards having children, given those sorts of very difficult constraints. And so it's like, not much evidence i think even ignoring the other two issues if evolution fails to robustly align humans to a concept that evolution can only reinforce them for like one to five times across a lifetime
0: do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. You would, would be able to send way more reward signals to these agents, right, if, if, I'm, if I'm catching your drift there. So it's the, the sparseness of the signal means that the alignment problem is just far more insuperable, even leaving aside how technically difficult it might be. And, and if we're training an agent that will eventually become far more powerful, maybe smarter than we are, there will be many, many more opportunities for saying good robot, bad robot, because we will be monitoring it, watching it and saying, that's not what we wanted. And so there's many more opportunities for it to better internalize the values that we're actually trying to get in there. Is is that mm-hmm. pretty close? Yeah, also um, another factor that
1: matters a lot in the theory of reinforcement learning yeah. is time between like, the actions that you take versus the reward you get. So for promoting inclusive genetic fitness, like the final population of inclusive genetic fitness happens long after you're dead. It's like a function of how you, well your all your distant descendants do. Um, and so it's very difficult to reward a system or rewards given later in time when more information about how inclusively genetically fit it was is more available to take the to give a system rewards at that time and have that like, propagate back to its behavior and the behavior that determined inclusive genetic fitness previously um, so like donating to sperm bank and that sort of thing Like you make the decision at time T and then children are born in the best case scenario at like time T plus three months. And it's very difficult to do credit assignment across all that
0: time. Um, And you probably won't be interacting with the kids either. So, So the reward circuitry that you were referencing earlier wouldn't even be activated. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's why we like enjoy sex. So much more than um, actually having children successfully um, because like you can immediately reward uh, the human for having sex in that time rather than trying to like, reward them for having been for childbirth nine months later. Um, and it's just so much easier to like connect the actions that the human took to reward that happened half a second later versus actions that the human took to reward that happened nine months later.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I, th- I think it's very compelling. Do you want to walk us yeah, through man. shard theory? If uh, if you'd rather save it for another time, I could do that as well.
1: Yeah, I can do a brief walkthrough of shard theory. So, um, our theory is intended to be like a pretty straight or a description of how pretty straightforward ROS processes can produce values. Um And so the basic idea is that like values are simple slash low rank descriptions of the tendency of certain humans to navigate towards like there is end state and that these things, these behavioral tendencies. And the corresponding internal cognition associated with them can be produced quite straightforwardly. We give the example of like a newborn baby who has simple reward fun- reward circuitry that activates upon consumption of sugar, and this baby like initially explores her environment pretty randomly, um, maybe with some slight biases towards like interacting with other people or stuff like that. Um, and during the course of her explorations she happens to like be given juice or happen to like encounter juice in her mouth and she swallows the juice and gets rewarded for that and so in the future when juice is like near her she's more likely to eat it right near her face she's more likely to eat it um and so like when the reward happens it makes her more likely to eat the juice which is near her face now uh, this sort of, like, you can imagine a sort of funnel uh, of possible situations that can lead to consumption of juice and therefore rewarding of the antecedent behaviors. So, you know, like at the start, she only consumes juice that's right near her mouth. Um, but eventually, during her random explorations, she's likely to, she maybe at some point, like, happens to turn her head juice that is initially a little bit away from her mouth, and then this causes her to be in the situation where juice is near her mouth, and that and previously in this situation she was re- reinforced for swallowing the juice that was near her mouth, and so um, she swallows the juice and reward happens, and that reward reinforces all the behaviors that were like antecedent or happened prior to the reward, and so. The funnel has like grown slightly because in the future, when the baby happens to see juice in her visual field, she, she's now likely to turn her head towards the juice and swallow the juice, causing reinforcement to happen. And so you can imagine this process going out further and further with more, with more and more complicated chains of behavioral steps required to consume juice. Right. So maybe in the future, um, like she encounters juice that's like a little bit away from her. And she crawls towards the juice, or crawls in a somewhat random direction, or happens to be near the juice, and the juice is like here. She turns head, swallows, reinforces that behavior, and now she begins to like crawl towards juice in her visual field. And so this, the like range of possible behavioral circumstances in which she'll seek out juice, continuously expands. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she becomes like fluent in language and multimodal capabilities such as buying stuff, um the like behavioral circumstances in which huge seeking actions manifest, it continues to become wider and wider until we say until it turns out that like her actions on we can like compactly describe how this person behaves in a wide variety of situations, well not that wide but like a variety of situations by saying she likes juice. And that is a short description of um, and that's like a short way of saying this person's policy in many, in different situations will tend to exhibit behavior that steers the world towards her having consumed juice. Right. and that's like a very the simplest possible value you can imagine of like a juice record, as we call it
0: that's that's very interesting that's a very interesting way to approach it as well I have a couple of thoughts about that uh, specifically around how different philosophers have conceptualized value but I think that there is something very interesting there and I wish you the best of luck in, in pursuing it maybe at a later date we can get more into the specifics of that. But uh, you've given me a lot to think about. I, I believe that I will go over this much more carefully and try to reread some of your papers. So I crystallize these objections and carry them forward with me. But I, I hope the audience gets a lot out of it as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you come up with in the months and years ahead. Yeah, so if you want to see like versions
1: of the arguments I made in described in much clearer language that I've used here. Um, you can look at my on profile, uh, which is just like Quentin Pope, and there you'll see posts such as um, evolution provides no evidence for the sharp left turn, mm-hmm. as well as um, uh, evolution is a bad analogy for AGI colon inner alignment, and those that explain other issues I've discussed here in more detail as well as there's an entire sequence on less wrong on chart theory which hopefully makes our thinking more clear
0: well fantastic I will include links to those resources for everybody and uh, I encourage everyone to go read them and really get into the arguments it's a big deal if like I said at the outset if you end up being right uh, if all of this is sound and holds water then it's pretty important for the the overall structure of the debate, this analogy between evolution and misalignment and the sharp. For all these claims, they're some of the main ones, that are at the heart of the whole doomerist perspective and so I, I'm, I'm very happy to see that people are kind of picking apart it. I always sort of suspected that there was something like that in there um, but I, you know, I, I'm not a PhD student, I've got two kids, you know, I do only have so much time to get into it but I'm, I'm really glad that, that someone out there is is thinking deeply about the actual mechanics of it, really getting into it so, uh, I'll be watching with excitement um, and less wrong for future publications. Yeah. Happy to be of what assistance I can. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c com.